This morning, Tim is going to be speaking from 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 5. And that's what I'm going to read to you now. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Good morning, everybody. We want to start out by inviting our children to Children's Church. There is a rather large gentleman in the door who will help you find that. <laughs> He's not scary. Okay, so let's open with a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, we sang of uh, how we can't sing about your attributes. You're indescribable. You're uncontainable. Lord, we get a handful of things about you, but we can't explain everything about you. And the great news, Lord, is that you're going to give us all of eternity to explore that. It would take all of eternity to understand all of who you are. And so thank you for being you and uh, just being so big, so wonderful. Uh, Lord, we, we uh, want to thank you also for the, um, the way that you are shepherding your church overall across the world. Um, Lord, we hear of churches struggling, churches thriving, and churches dying. And Lord, we understand those were all through your hands. So thank you for doing those things. And uh, we thank you for your work in this church and how we're doing. And Father, I want to especially thank you for the Southern Baptist Convention's uh, um, meeting this past week in Anaheim and how things went fairly smoothly. There was no big explosions or divisions or any of that. And Lord, that's important because that's a very large Protestant denomination here in the United States. And we just pray for our brothers and sisters there that they would be walking with you and, Lord, that you would lead them as a whole group into godliness and, and more Christ-likeness and to help them grow in their faith. So thank you for that. And, Father, we thank you also for the people that you've brought to us here to help us grow in our faith and in our godliness. And, Lord, I think of Joel and Ashley. I thank you for the, uh, the work that they have been doing here with us, not just in music but also in outreach and other things. Um, and, Lord, it's important to remember that they've just both graduated from college or from um, nursing school. And, Lord, they were doing all that work while going to school. So thank you so much for their, their labors. And uh, we just pray your rich blessing on whatever comes next for them, whatever their, their, uh, their next steps are. Lord, we trust them, trust them into your hands, and we trust that you will use them for your glory and for the furtherance of the kingdom and for their great joy. 
Lord, we pray now that you would be with us as we turn to your word, as we seek to understand what you have to say to us this morning. Holy Spirit, open our minds and our hearts as you open your word to us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a guy on Twitter named James Rebanks, and he's got about 160,000 followers. That's a pretty significant Twitter presence. And he's also written an international best-selling memoir. So who is this guy? Right? Who is James Rebanks? Um, he's not a billionaire. He's not a politician. He's not a movie star. He's a shepherd. He, he shepherds sheep in the northern part of England. And um, so I want to tell you just a little bit of his story. Uh, this comes from a 2018 article in The New Yorker about him. And so this is, I, no, I didn't write any of this. I'm quoting these parts, okay? So James Rebanks' family was, has worked on the land in Cumbria for 600 years. His father and grandfather were shepherds, and he dropped out of school at 15 to help them on the farm. But at 21, sensing that he was missing something, Rebanks took his A-levels and went to Oxford to study history. For years, he supplemented his income as a shepherd by working as a consultant for UNESCO. That's the United Nations. Um, the hills of Cumbria in northern England are known as fells, F-E-L-L-S, fells. They are among the wettest, coldest, and windiest places where sheep are farmed outdoor, outdoors year-round. The weather is rotten more or less from October to May. So by lambing season, a three-week period usually after Easter, the flock, the shepherd, and the land itself are worn out. When it goes right, the feeling is wonderful. Quote, my whole love of this is, try, is about trying to breed the perfect sheep and being part of a tradition, Rebanks said. The previous week, one of his best ewes had given birth to twins that were trampled, and he had to put them down. I didn't cry, Rebanks said, but 10-year-old me would have been out there sobbing. In his father's days, the farmers from the valley would get together after lambing and spend a day shooting crows out of trees just to let off steam. So this lambing season is pretty intense. Rebanks was concerned that one Herdwick ewe was mothering her lamb excessively. Last year, in her determination to tidy up her offspring, she chewed off its tail. Her lamb this year was almost entirely black with unusual white markings on its head. Quote, any minute she's going to crunch that tail, Rebanks said. Have you any ideas how I can stop her? I don't know. It's not a regular problem, is it? I could tape its tail. I could tape it. In the end, he stood and waited. The ewes seemed to grow calmer, and after a few minutes, Rebanks walked over, picked up the lamb under its front legs. Um, it went floppy in his hands, and he carried it a few yards from the back, that's the British word for creek, and laid it in a safer place. The ewe followed. There was nothing else for the moment that the shepherd could do. Quote, we have got to trust to fate now, he said. So why bring up this shepherd? Well, it's interesting. I might wind up getting his, his memoir just to, to read more about him. He's an interesting character because he started out on a sheep farm in northern England and dropped out of high school. So he could have just become a farmer and gone and done his things, but he got his A-levels and went to Oxford of all places. By the way, he hated Oxford. He couldn't stand the people. He said they were all so snooty and snotty. Um, but he went to Oxford, and at Oxford, he got this really advanced education. 
So when he comes back to the farm, when he returns to, to um, shepherding, he's got this wonderful education and now he's able to communicate to us the glories, the beauty of shepherding and what it's like to, to take care of these sheep and what, what the joys and the frustrations are. So I just thought it was really a pretty picture of this, this kind of pastoral, bucolic life of, of shepherding. But I mean, he's up on this hill and, and like I said, it's some of the worst weather in the world, but he's out there doing it. He's taking care of these sheep. And when it goes well, shepherding is a beautiful thing. So I want to show you a video. This is not um, uh, Rebanks. This is just kind of shepherding in general. So go ahead. And this is what it can look like when it's done right. So there's not a shepherd or a sheepdog attending every single one of those sheep. They're, they're not micromanaging and, and checking each one as they go through the gate. They are moving the flock as a whole. And the sheep are responding, and they're, they're keeping track. Every once in a while, you see a sheep kind of get out off to the side, and they'll bring it back in, and they'll, they'll move the flock. And so the, the interplay between a good shepherd and a flock who knows him can just be these beautiful images of, of flowing sheep. And, and when it's done well, it can go great. Let's let this play. It's just, I don't need to talk over it. Although I got to say, the computer programmer in me is thinking how to program each one of these sheep in a, in a simulation. And, and <laughs> the other part of this equation is not just the shepherds, but the sheepdog. But the shepherd is in charge of the sheepdogs. And he's going to direct the sheepdog where they need to go so that the sheep will move like they're supposed to. So you can see those little black spots running around. Those are the sheepdog keeping it all in order. So that's when it goes well. Got another video of when it doesn't go so well. <laughs> I don't need to introduce this one. It's going to have text come up. So go ahead and play the next one, too. So sheep, when they're managed well, when they're handled well, do you see how beautiful that flow was? And when they're handled poorly, <laughs> they kind of run amok. So this morning, when we look at, at 1 Peter chapter 5, he begins by talking to the elders, and he's going to tell us to shepherd. And so that's what we're going to turn to, is we're going to listen to what he has to say. Now, I want you to understand, there aren't many in this room who are elders. You don't get to check out. You don't get to go, oh, this isn't for me. This is very much for all of us, and I'll show you why as we go through this. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you. He starts out by addressing the elders. Why start with the elders? Remember what last week was. He was talking about suffering and how judgment is going to start in the household of God and is going to purify 
the, the household of God, and that's where it's going to start. So why mention elders now? Um, well, last week I brought up Ezekiel chapter 9 and how that looked. The story then was God has these angels come into Jerusalem. This is Ezekiel's vision. These angels come into Jerusalem, and he tells them, go out and mark everybody who is weeping and mourning over the, the abomination that's going on in the nation. And so they do. And then the next thing he says is, um, verses 5 and 6, And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. So it's a pretty brutal image. And then he says, begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. So I think this is still ringing in Peter's ears. Last week he's talking about the judgment that's going to come upon the church to purify us, to make us more Christ-like. And then he says, oh yeah, and it's going to start with the elders. And so that's the bad news. <laughs> is uh, now I've just made sure that nobody wants to be an elder uh, if we try to recruit anybody else. But it gets, it's okay. It's, it's okay because we're all in the same bucket here. But he starts by exhorting the elders because as God purifies and works to, to purify his church, he starts with the leadership, with the elders. So it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God, he told us. Um, Peter's point is not to try to scare off elders at this point. Uh, but we do have to say... You need to have some care with, with that office. There, there's something to it. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. So I'm standing up here every Sunday putting my neck on the line because I'm going to be judged with a greater strictness. Um, we'll go back to this judgment in a little bit. Uh, there, there's more to be said about it, but I just want to start by saying it, it begins with the elders. And the next thing Peter says is he says, I exhort elders as a fellow elder. Now I think that's a remarkable thing for Peter to say. Peter's an apostle. He doesn't say, I exhort you elders as an apostle, as one of the 12, one of the 12 apostles. No, he says, as a fellow elder. So what he's doing is he's not calling down instructions from Mount Olympus. Um, he doesn't appeal to his apostolic authority and say, you, you other people better get your act together. He's right there with us. He's one of us. He's saying, as a fellow, as one of you, I'm exhorting you because of the, what, Peter, or what uh, Ezekiel is telling us. I'm exhorting you as a fellow elder. And then the next thing he says is, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. So he's a fellow elder, and he's a witness to the sufferings of Christ. So what does witness mean? Does this mean that he stood and watched Christ suffer? Well, he did partly, but he wound up denying him three times and ran off into the night crying. So he didn't get to see the whole suffering. He wasn't there for the crucifixion. So what's he talking about? Well, I don't think he's talking about witnessing as in, in watching it. I think what he's talking about is witnessing as in testifying too. And don't forget what he's told us before. In, in chapter 4, verse th 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So I think that's what he's appealing to. He's, he's, he's saying, I have suffered with Christ's sufferings. I'm a witness to the sufferings that, that come. And, and you could say, wow, that, that's really hard. Peter, the, the denier of Christ, the, the one who ran and hid, and now he's suffering with Christ. 
But he also reminds us this is not the end of it. This is the same Peter who did those things, who Jesus had to tell him three times, shepherd my sheep, and kind of restore him, goes on and he says, he is a witness as well as a partaker. He's confident that he will be a partaker in the glory that is about to be revealed. He, he understands, he, he's not acting as if we don't know his story. The gospels record his story, inspired scripture for all of eternity. His, his failure is right there with us. But here's the thing that makes Peter a Christian. His failure is not the end of Peter. He, he knows it's not about him. He's, he's a witness to the sufferings of Christ and he's anticipating the glory that is to be revealed. And he's already told us, like I just quoted in 4.13, we will participate in that glory too. That's the glory that we're looking for. So this is what he tells the elders. This is the command to the elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That, that's the picture. Now in, in Ezekiel 34, much later in the book, almost all of chapter 34 is about God's complaint against the shepherds of Israel because they didn't do their job. And so Peter is rem remembering what the judgment was from Ezekiel 9, and he's, he's exhorting us, shepherd the flock, be engaged, be, be involved with them, do what it needs to be done. And so where he goes in, chapter, or in verse 2 then is he says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, exercising oversight. That word for oversight is episkopos. It's where we get the word episcopal, where we get the word bishop. Uh, bishops are overseers. And so what he says there is episkopos. And, and it's kind of cool because we translate it as oversight, and it kind of lines up with the Greek. The Greek is epi, which is um, um, upon, and skopos, which is where we get scope. So it really is a great translation to say oversight. And so that's what you could see in that video of those, that, those uh, herds moving, is the, the shepherd didn't have to go and micromanage every single little sheep, he provided oversight to make sure that the flock moved in the right direction. The sheep took care of the rest. But he provided oversight. He didn't fall asleep and let the sheep just go wandering off either. So that's the command here is exercise oversight. You elders, exercise oversight. And then he says he's going to give us a list of uh, do's and don'ts, or don'ts and do's, I guess is a better way to say it. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So what he says is, don't be an elder if you don't want to. That's the simplest way to put it. You won't do it well if you don't want to do it. If it's not something that you feel like you, you, sh you should be called to. He says, rather, do it willingly. The opposite is to do it willingly, not under compulsion. Well, it's your turn. You know, imagine if we had a, a roster of all the members in the church, and, and this year, you're an elder. I don't want to be an elder, too bad. That would be doing it under compulsion. That's, that's not going to work because God has designed it. He wants you to do it willingly. He wants your heart to be in it. So don't do it because you're pressed into it, um, but willingly. So that's the, the command to the elders. Well, what about the rest of us? Well, in a moment, Peter's going to tell us that the elders are examples to the flock. So if the elders are the example to the flock, what is the flock supposed to do with the example? You're intended to mirror the example. You're intended to pay attention. So I think this equally applies to all, to all of us. So what he's saying is don't come to church or small group because you feel like it's a duty. 
Don't be involved in other Christians' lives because you have to. But don't not do it either, right? Shepherd the flock, provide oversight. So what are you supposed to do if your heart's not in it? What, what if I do feel like the only reason I come on Sunday morning is because I have to? Maybe I know better than that, but my experience, my heart is saying, yeah, I just got to do this. I got to suck it up and go. Well, there's a handful of possibilities here. So it could be that you're just in a dry spell. Spiritually, I think all of us have hit those times where we're just in a real dry spell. We don't feel any connection. I told this story before. I can remember when, when I was in seminary, driving to school and praying and feeling like my prayers never went beyond the roof of my car, just isolated and cut off. So you could be hitting a dry spell. Um, what are dry spells? I don't know. People are complicated. Could be any number of reasons. But sometimes I think it's because God might take a step back to draw you out more. If, you're too, if it's too close, you're not going to move. But now it might be time for a growth moment, and so God may step back and draw you out. So you have to just kind of muscle through those dry spells. Just keep, keep praying. That's, that's what I did is I just, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel connected. I didn't feel like God was listening, and I just kept praying and, and struggled through. Um, by his grace, I made it. So I'm, I'm still a Christian. Good news. Um, so it could be just a dry spell. Um, if you're having a problem connecting at church, it could be that you might be expecting the wrong things from church. What do you think church is for? Um, what are you expecting when you come here? And, you know, I'm not going to list the options. There's, there are tons of things that you could think a church should do for you that it's not doing. Well, who's at the center of that equation? You. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe, maybe you're the problem with the church. I know I'm the problem with the church. Maybe you can join me in that. It could be not that you're expecting wrong things, but it could be that you're projecting your ideal of what a church should be onto the church. That's something Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a wish dream. And so in his book, uh, Life Together, he says this. He said, innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it has sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize that. But God's grace swiftly shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. I think there's a brilliant insight into what Christian community can be like. I expect the church to be like this. And the church is not meeting my expectation. Therefore, the church has failed. And what Bonhoeffer is warning us is, maybe it's your vision that's failed. Whose church is it anyway? It's God's church. He will determine how this works. And so there's a great blessing in becoming disillusioned with the church then you can fall in love with it. So a story I, I was praying this morning when we were praying in small groups is I got to a point after seminary where I thought, I blew it. I don't know what seminary was. I'm not going to ever be a pastor. I just sat down and wept. As a matter of fact, there's an email still in my 
draft folder from, I think it was 2006 or so, that said Clarity Calling, and it explained to a handful of my friends why I'm never going to be a pastor. I had to get to the point where that was all shattered, where God broke that dream, where I became disillusioned also with myself before I could then step in and say, okay, Lord, what do you want? What are you going to do? So it could be that you're not getting out of church what you want because what you want may not be lined up with what God wants you to want. So that's a possibility too. Another danger is you could be not serving. God has given us spiritual gifts. Those gifts are not your gifts. They, they're not for you. They're intended to be shared with other people. And so if you're not sharing, if you're not serving, if you're not helping other people, if you're not using whatever gift that is, you're going to be very uncomfortable with that community because you don't feel connected, you don't feel complete. And then finally, if we're going to be honest, you could be in a crummy church. There's always that danger. If you don't feel connected to a church, you might just be in a lousy church. Or you might be in a good church and it's just not your church. So what, what Peter is saying is you elders serve willingly. You Christians, look at your elders and see how they're serving willingly, and you do that too. Be intentional about going to church, and, and how can I get more out of this? What can I do? Why am I not feeling connected? How am I missing things? And pay, pay attention to what you might be called to do in those instances. So that's the don't do it and do do it. Um, so how do you get over the compulsion feeling then, if you're starting to do it? Well, first of all, work through it. Try harder. I hate that answer in, in sermons. Just work harder. But really, the answer is, it's not going to, how do you get better at something? You get better at something by doing it. So when people say, how do I learn how to pray? Well, you pray. That's how you learn how to pray. Um, how do I learn baseball? Well, you go out and get hit in the face with a baseball a couple of times, and you figure out where to put the mitt. You have to go and do it. So if you're struggling in a church, and it's a good church, and they're solid, then work through it. But that's not a fully a Christian answer. The other part of it is pray through it. This is a spiritual endeavor. This is something God is doing on a spiritual level as well as a uh, uh, community level. So be praying. Call out to the Lord. Lord, I'm in a dry spell. Lord, I don't feel at home in this church. I don't feel connected. Pray through it. Seek others' prayers as well. And then the hard part. This is the hardest part of this entire equation. Wait on the Lord. You just have to say, Lord, your timing is perfect and right. You know exactly when the right thing is. And so I'm going to continue to call out to you. I'm going to continue to reach out, but I'm going to wait on you. Another thing you might do after you've done all of these things first is reflect on what you feel is compulsory. And if others expect it from you or if you are just expecting it. What is the portion that you feel is compulsory that you're not comfortable with? And is it a real expectation? Or is it something that you have put on yourself? That's, that's hard to do. So elders, elder well because you want to. Church family, be the church family because you want to. The next thing he says is, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Elders, we are a small church. We don't have a big budget, so we don't have a huge staff with other pastors. Pastor and elder are basically the same thing. It's just one gets paid to do, to do it full time. So we don't have a big problem with that. And I can't think of anybody who goes into ministry because they're going to get rich. You know, you get an MDiv, you get a master's degree, 
And typically, pastors earn significantly less than other master's degrees. So I don't think many people come into this expecting huge uh, amounts of money. So shameful gain could be financial, but it could also be for the praise and admiration of others. Look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at who I am. That would be for shameful gain. To get a sense of importance and, and significance. I have done something. I have contributed mightily to the kingdom of God, and you should recognize that in me. That would be shameful gain. To get pastor in your job title, even associate or executive or something like that, so you can get a book published or your next step in climbing the corporate ladder. These kind of things would be, if you put those first, that shameful gain. But what is helpful in this, most helpful part of this, this admonition is not what the opposite is. Right? You, you would he expect not for shameful gain, but for selflessness, for, um, for free. Uh, for the generosity of it, but he, he doesn't say that. He says, not for self, selfish gain, but eagerly. So what he's telling us here is, what should come first in this equation of being an elder is you should be an elder, shepherd the flock, provide oversight eagerly. If you do that first, if you're looking at the right target, if you say the most important thing is that I'm taking care of God's people, then the selfish gain falls into the right place. So I'm not saying don't ever get a book published or, or look for your next ministry opportunity or, or any of that. What I'm saying is if Christ is first, if his church is first, then you will do it well and those other things can flow out of it. I mean, there are plenty of, of good pastors who've written tons of books. Uh, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, uh, John MacArthur, um, John Piper, Tim Keller, um, Sinclair Ferguson, um, Lig Duncan, there's a bunch of people who've written tons of great books. But they're faithful pastors because first and foremost, they're pastors. So that's what he means by, by being eager about it, doing it eagerly. So if that's what the elders are doing, and we're supposed to look at them and go, how, how should I do that? Well, the, the admission here is, don't be part of a church for selfish gain. Don't join a church because there might be business opportunities here. Um, there might be uh, business connections. I can make some, some uh, connections this way. Um, there was a church that we were a part of, a gentleman joined, and, and he'd been there for a little bit, and he starts talking to all these other people about this great investment opportunity that he had for him. It turned out to be a pyramid scheme. It was a total ripoff. It was a direct violation of what this is about. That was for selfish gain. It wasn't for the community, for the people. What you have to remember is as you join the church, as you're part of the church, you have to remember these people are individuals. They're, they're people for whom Christ died. So remember that, that picture of the, the sheep running around. It felt like one large organic unit. It was a bunch of individuals. So you have to see it for the individuals. So don't join a church for selfish gain. What can I come and show these people and, and tell them how wonderful I am? And, and I'll, I'll teach Sunday school and they'll all applaud me every time I walk in and, and rise because of my wisdom. The church is supposed to be formative. The, the church is supposed to form you in the image of Christ. It is not supposed to be performative. Come and look at my, my Instagram feed as I show, you know, selfie with the, the nice background of the church in the back or something. It, it, it's about the church first and foremost. So don't do it for selfish gain, but come to church eagerly. Be part of the church eagerly. 
put the church first and all those other things can flow out of it. There can be opportunities. You may have a great investment plan for somebody and it would be wise and loving to share it with them. But if you join with the plan of, I've got the, I'm gonna sell this to everybody, that's wrong. Start with loving the people. Verse three, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So elders, we do have people with whose care we are charged. Hebrews 13, 17 says that we will give an account for their souls. So when he says not domineering, but being examples, we have to be careful with that and say, I'm not going to be the, the, um, the slave master here, nor am I going to check out. Uh, one of God's complaints about shepherds, especially from Ezekiel 34, was the shepherds of Israel was they were domineering. They were feeding themselves. They were getting fat. Jesus accused the lawyers in his day of laying heavy burdens on people and not lifting a finger to help them. That is what it means to be domineering, is to push it on everybody else, and it's everybody else's responsibility. And an abuse of power like that, that temptation is real. It's easy to slide into that. So what's the example? What's the opposite, rather, of, of domineering? Well, to not domineer, then, he says, is to be an example to the flock. So in other words, we're going to exercise oversight. We're going to provide that, that, that oversight of the flock, and we're going to help the flock move in the right directions, not with a whip and a cane, but by example, by saying, follow us. As we follow Christ, follow us. So that is how we can do it. And we, when we do it that way, when we put people first, care more about the people than the program that we want them in or something, then we'll shepherd better. So one of the things that happens here is he says um, to, to shepherd the flock. And last month, Dan preached for me. And one of the things he said in the sermon was he said, I'm not a shepherd. And I had a couple people ask me about it. And I heard it. And Dan and I, when we were driving someplace, we talked about it. And I, I understood him correctly, but it didn't come out particularly well. So I want to clarify what Dan meant by saying, I'm not a shepherd. He didn't mean, forget 1 Peter chapter 5. What he was trying to say is the shepherd, in, in the picture that I showed you, the shepherd is a different species than a sheep. And I think what he meant by, I'm not a shepherd is, I'm not a different species than all of you. If, if you listen to his sermon in context, he was saying, we elders, we're just one of you guys. We're just in a different role. So I think that's where he was going with it. So that's how we can be an example. None of those sheep are going to stand up on two legs and wear Wellington boots out there in the field because they're trying to imitate the shepherd. That's not possible. But in a church environment, as we, our elders, are striving to, to follow Jesus Christ, we can leave an example that you could follow. So that's, that's what he means by not overbearing. You don't have to beat people to death with it, but you do it through love and through example. So be imitators of me as I of, am of Christ, is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. So the amount of Christ-likeness that you see in your elders, imitate that. Follow that. Where you see less than Christ-likeness or un-Christ-likeness, don't follow that. Don't assume that just because they're doing it, they must be right. Follow us as we follow Christ. We'll, we'll try to lead the flock in the right direction. So here's the other thing. I mentioned Hebrews 13, 17. Can you go ahead and put that up? Um, there's a little more to that. It sounds like it's aimed at the, the elders, right? You will give an account for the souls under your care. Ha! Ah, it's not aimed at us. Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The command from Hebrews is to you, not to us. What, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, help your elders lead well. Help them do this well. It's a challenge. And so, so do that in a way that would be helpful to them. So I mentioned earlier this judgment, this idea of judgment coming on, uh, on the church and uh, starting with the elders. And I said, you know, teachers would be judged more strictly and elders will give an account for your souls. Who on earth would want to do that? <laughs> Who would want to take that kind of responsibility on? I'm going to have to explain to God why you are the way you are. I'm going to have to give an account for you. Oh my gosh. But don't forget, this judgment is not to condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The judgment is not for condemnation, but for affirmation, for building up. And so that's why in verse 4 he goes on and he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So when the chief shepherd, last week in Six Essentials we did eschatology. I've been spending a lot of time in eschatology. I want you to know how much I am reigning in, not going all eschatological on this, because we're talking about when the shepherd appears. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep to what Peter's talking about. When the shepherd appears, when Jesus returns, the judgment happens. We will be ra we will raised and we will stand before him and we will give an account. And the blessing that Peter has for us is, you elders who shepherd the sheep well, who are engaged with this flock, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is a reward for this. Yes, it's difficult now. Yes, it has its challenges. It has its heart breaks as some of the sheep wander away and never come back. It, it breaks your heart. But you will receive a crown of glory. And, and in Revelation, there's a couple of places where the throne is surrounded by 24 elders and they're wearing white gowns and they've got crowns on their head. And what do they do with those crowns? They take them off and they throw them at the feet of Jesus. They say, this was all from you anyway. So the, that's the glory is we get to worship him a little bit more in heaven because we got a crown to throw at his feet. But don't miss the point that when the shepherd appears, that is the glory that is about to be revealed, which Peter has already said we all get to partake in. We get all get to participate in that. So what the idea here, the picture is, Gang, we're all in this together. If we had no shepherd, we would be heading downtown in Spain. We don't want to do that. We have a shepherd so that we head from one verdant pasture to the next, one green pasture full of food to the next, growing in Christ-likeness step by step, and we're all doing it together. So the elders are not those who have arrived and, and we're perfect and we have no more maturity to do. We're growing as well. But you've got to have somebody out front leading and, and directing in the right direction and guarding the edges of the flock. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're called to do. So that when the great shepherd appears, we all receive that, that crown of glory. We will all be there when the glory is revealed. That's our hope. That's our desire. Is we want to see everybody at the finish line. That's what we're after. So now in verse 5, it seems like Peter's switching topics here. He says, likewise... You are, who are younger be subject to the elders. The, the word elders is presbytos, which is older person, older man usually. So when he mentions here the younger, the word is neos. 
So right, we know Neil, right? The, the, you younger folks um, submit to the elders. So is he talking about in general, well, you young folks should pay attention to the older folks around you? Well, yeah, sure, because I mean, there's plenty of biblical admonition to do that. Um, you should rise for a hoary head. That means anybody with gray hair, you should stand up and recognize their, um, their place. I, unfortunately, I don't think they mentioned anything about rising for the bald head, but, you know, got a little gray hair for it. I don't think that's where he goes. I don't think he has shifted to just in general. I think what he means here is elder, elders as in elders as in how he's been talking about elders since the beginning of the chapter. So when he says, young, you who are young, be subject to your elders, I think that's where he's saying, and by the way, this, this involves you guys too. So listen to your elders. Listen to what they've got to say. Be subject to them. Learn from them. Grow with them. Walk with them. So he's, he's talking about that, and this is the you too part. By the way, this, this, I think Peter got to the point where he went, wait a minute, the congregation just checked out. Let me bring them back in, you too. So I think that's what's going on. Now here's how he sums it all up. Here's where it all draws together. What will this be like if a congregation and its leaders are working together hand in hand this way? He says, clothe yourselves, you younger people. Nope, clothe yourselves, all of you. Elders, young people, deacons, um, Sunday school teachers, uh, people who clean the facility, uh, people who print the bulletin, all of that, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So here's what the picture looks like of this congregation functioning well. The elders are leading, but not domineering. The elders are, are stepping out in front and saying, this is where we think we should go, and, and this is how this works, and, and we're doing it from a sense of humility because we're commanded in this too, to humble ourselves to one another. So we're not gonna lord it over the sheep or be, be outrageous about it or for selfish gain. We're out there doing this and the congregation meanwhile is looking and going, yeah, I recognize Christ in this. Yeah, I'm gonna submit to that as well. So it's this call to mutual humility. What a wonderful place to be. Anybody wanna be in that church? I, I wanna sign up for that one. I think we got a good taste of it here. I think we do pretty well on that. Be humble to one another for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who would like more grace? I, I think it would be wonderful if I could have more grace in my life. Here's how you get more grace. Be humble. So what does humble mean? I think in, in our society, we think of humble as in kind of milk toast, and I would never assert myself, and I'm always deferential to everybody else. That's not a biblical picture of humility. Moses is said to have been the most humble man on earth at the time, and he was pretty brutal at times. When they did the golden calf, he ground up the golden calf and made him drink the water that he threw it in. He could really thunder almost as much as God from Mount Sinai. Jesus Christ himself humbled himself and became, um, became a servant. And yet some of the language he uses with the Pharisees, oh my gosh, you whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. On the outside, you're all pretty, but inside, you're just unclean. I mean, this is a humble man. This is the most humble man that could be. So what does humble mean? What I think he means by humble yourself is to say, I see myself as God sees me and nothing more. I am in this position because of God's grace, because that's what he's called to me to. I am not the center of the universe, God is. I am not the most important person in this entire church. Jesus is. 
And so if you're humble that way, it's kind of like we were talking about earlier with, with uh, selfish gain, but eagerly. If you put those things first, then you will thunder at people who are going astray. You will be very angry when somebody begins to espouse some errant doctrine or living a lifestyle that's out of uh, accord with what a Christian should be like. But you won't do it because of you've been insulted. You'll do it because God is being insulted. So humble yourselves, all of you. And if you humble yourself this way, you receive more grace. God is delighted to see people live that way. I, you're in agreement with me on how I've made you. That's wonderful. Let's, let's explore that more. Let's build you up more. How else can we, we see this grow? So that's the command for us. That's what he wants us to see. That's what he wants us to do. So what he's telling us here is this is what a humble community will look like. A humble community will have some people in charge. That doesn't make them the most important person in the church. A humble community will have people who are in charge submitting to those around them, looking out for them. And the people around them will be gladly submitting because that's how a safe place to do it. That's a, that's a safe way to do it. So when he says, starts with elders among you, exercise oversight. Don't forget Ezekiel 9. That threat of judgment starting in the household of God is real. And it starts with the elders. So it might be that if persecution rises up in this nation, who would be the first people hauled away? My name's on the, out, my name's on the, on the envelope there. Um, I'm going to be one of the first targets. In, in Soviet Russia, in, um, in uh, Czechoslovakia, and other places, when they began to crack down on people in, in China, who did they go to? The first people they arrested were the elders, the pastors. So that's what we're called for. That's what we're called to do, is we're to, we're to be standing in that place so that when we're arrested, when we're tortured, when we're beaten, we can provide an example. Now, I pray that it never gets to that point in, in our nation. I, I really, I, I don't think we're in anywhere in danger of that. We may get some more pressure, but I don't think we're going to get arrested. But this is what it means when, how, when judgment begins in the household of God, is it's going to start with the shepherds and then come down. But if we're living this, humil this humble life, submitting to each other, watching out for each other, we'll be in a pretty good place because God will give us more grace in that moment, and that's what we'll need. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would grant us a very clear vision of what it means to be your people. We are the sheep of your hand. Lord, you are our shepherd. We don't want. You lead us into green pastures. You make us lay down beside still waters. You anoint our heads with oil. Help us to understand what it means for us to be sheep under your care. And Lord, as, as we shepherds who are part of the flock are attempting to help and to lead, Lord, would you grant us humility in doing that as well, that we would not become conceited and full of ourselves, but Lord, that we would trust you, that it's your church and you're the head. And Lord, as these two things weave together, the leadership leading humbly and the, the um, congregation following humbly, Lord, your grace will pour out. You've promised us this this. And so, Lord, we count on it. And Lord, we ask in this morning, would you pour more grace on us? Show us more of who you are. Lead us well, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.